Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From GPB News, this is Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Here are the top stories we're following today. Georgia voters will have additional time to return absentee ballots in the November 3rd election after a federal judge extended the deadline for mail-in votes to be counted. U.S. District Court Judge Eleanor Ross ruled that votes delivered within three days following the election must be counted. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger is expected to appeal the ruling. He wants absentee ballots to be turned in by the end of Election Day. Georgia is showing progress in slowing cases of COVID-19, according to the latest data from the State Department of Public Health. But public health experts warn the number of infections per capita remains high. Coming up on Political Rewind, we'll look at the confusing picture of where the coronavirus stands here in Georgia and nationally. First, NPR News. Live from NPR News, I'm Corva Coleman. President Trump will visit Kenosha, Wisconsin this afternoon. He'll view damage from recent protests and speak with law enforcement officers. The protests stem from last week's shooting and serious wounding of a black man and the separate slayings of two protesters. From member station WUWM, Mayan Silver reports, Democratic officials have asked Trump not to visit Kenosha today. They're concerned that he'll inflame tensions. It's been tough for the city. Two people are dead, one is paralyzed and another injured. The city's rebuilding from damage and boarded up businesses throughout its downtown. And Trump has a history of inflammatory language. Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes tweeted, the city was on fire and we need healing, not a barrel of gasoline rolling in. But there are plenty of Republicans who want to hear and see from President Trump, like U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, who said Trump has provided decisive leadership. Mayan Silver reporting. Authorities in Portland, Oregon, have identified the man shot and killed over the weekend as Aaron J. Danielson. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson reports last night friends of Danielson held a brief news conference where they remembered him and called for justice. The Multnomah County Medical Examiner determined Danielson's manner of death was homicide and the cause of death was a gunshot wound to the chest. Danielson was 39 years old. His friends called him Jay. He was a member of the regional far-right political group Patriot Prayer, which is engaged in violence at protests in Portland. Luke Carrillo said he was Danielson's business partner. Aaron J. Danielson was not a radical. He was not a racist. and he was not a fascist. He was not an insider or an instigator. He was a freedom-loving American who died expressing his beliefs, a right which is guaranteed to all of us through the Constitution. Danielson's friends wouldn't take questions from reporters. His family, in a statement, requested privacy and said they want the violence to stop. For NPR News, I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. Fire officials in California say crews have made significant progress there to contain some of the large wildfires burning around the San Francisco Bay Area. From member station KQED, Marco Seiler Gonzalez reports the U.S. Army is deploying 200 soldiers to Northern California to help firefighters. The August complex fire has already consumed over 200,000 acres in and around the Mendocino National Forest and is one of 18 major fires burning across the state. That has left fire crews stretched thin. Nicole hawk Weeman, Deputy Public Affairs Officer for U.S. Army North, says, after receiving some training, 
Soldiers will help to hold existing fire lines. To make sure that there's no issues with areas reburning or fires reigniting. The August complex fire is around 20% contained. For NPR News, I'm Marco Sadler Gonzalez in Oakland. You're listening to NPR News. Residents of Louisiana continue to clear wreckage from Hurricane Laura. The storm caused at least 18 deaths in Louisiana and Texas and catastrophic damage. The Environmental Protection Agency says it got 31 reports of oil and chemical spills from the hurricane. Among them is a plant that caught fire and released chlorine gas into the air near Lake Charles. The EPA report did not have many details about other oil and chemical spills. Democratic primary voters in Massachusetts will decide today whether to renominate Senator Ed Markey or choose a challenger from a political dynasty. From member station WBUR, Callum Borchers reports. A recent WBUR poll shows this is the rare political contest where the challenger, 39-year-old Congressman Joe Kennedy, has higher name recognition than the incumbent. Kennedy has embraced his family legacy while also casting himself as a change agent in the final days of the Senate primary. We can accept where we are. We can hope that the political winds will jolt incumbency into action. Or we can choose something different. But Kennedy has struggled at times to clarify how he'd be different. He agrees with Markey on most issues, and after leading the race early, he's fallen behind down the stretch, according to the latest polls. For NPR News, I'm Callum Borchers in Boston. The U.S. Navy says that one of its aircraft crashed on Monday on Virginia's eastern shore. There were two pilots and two crew aboard. All were able to parachute to safety. No one on the ground was hurt and no structures were damaged. The cause of the crash is being investigated. This is NPR. Support for NPR comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the ECMC Foundation, working to improve post-secondary educational outcomes for underserved students through evidence-based innovation. Learn more at ecmcfoundation.org. Glad to have all of you back with us for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, You know, if you're a regular listener to the show, that uh, for the past two weeks, we focus very narrowly on presidential politics, covering the Democratic Convention Two weeks ago, last week, we covered the Republican convention. And during that time, we got away from some of the subjects that have become so important to you and to us on this show. One of them being, where do we stand in terms of the coronavirus pandemic here in Georgia, but also what's happening with the pandemic nationally? We have a great, great panel to talk with us about it to hopefully clear up what I continue to find somewhat confusing. I'm really not sure, depending on who I listen to, uh, exactly what's happening in the state or nationally. So before I introduce the panel, just some benchmarks. Um, The Department of Public Health now says that we've had 270,471 cases of COVID-19, 5,633 deaths, 24,000-plus hospitalizations, Um, And here's the number that I'm really eager to get our panel to talk about. The the seven-day rolling average, which this is a language many of us have come to uh, talk about frequently, the seven-day rolling average of new coronavirus COVID-19 cases in Georgia, according again to the State Department of Public Health, has been 2,031. Uh, Yesterday, 1,498 new cases were reported. Um, 
and, and the reason that's interesting is those numbers are down considerably from uh, a week ago and uh, throughout much of August when we had 3,000-plus uh, new cases a day. So with all that in mind, Governor Kemp says that things are getting better in the state. As we all know, President Trump believes that the virus is being overstated, is exaggerated, and has always said that it will go away magically one day. And unfortunately, you cannot separate politics from uh, talking about the virus. Um, We talked on the show last week about the fact that the president's acceptance speech was given in front of 1,500 unmasked people crowded together on the South Lawn of the White House, uh, creating the impression that we had nothing to fear, no reason to continue worrying about the coronavirus. All right, so it's confusing, and that's why we have a great panel to talk about it today. Let's start with our friend Tamar Hallerman. She's the senior reporter at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Tamar, it's good to have you back. You were gone for a couple weeks. You missed all of the excitement, and I put that in quotes, of covering the political (laughs) conventions. Poor me. It was also nice being at the beach and being able to tune it out a little bit, too. Yeah, it was like it was like trying to walk through a minefield, especially the week of the Republican <laughs> convention. You're, I think it's a good thing you didn't have to put up with us. Um, we had also with us today, uh, we have not one, but two epidemiologists. Um, we have Dr. Karen Landman, who is a physician, an epidemiologist, and a journalist who covers topics in medicine and public health. Uh, Karen, we're glad to have you here. You trained in internal medicine and pediatrics, and your specialty is infectious diseases and and clinical microbiology, and you worked at the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, Have I got that right so far? You've got it absolutely right. I also spent some time at the New York City Health Department after all that, so um, have had a variety of interesting experiences that I've been very lucky to have. Thanks for having me. Thank you for, yeah, we're glad to have you here. We're also joined by Dr. Jody Guest, who is an infectious disease epidemiologist, a professor and vice chair of the Department of Epidemiology at the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University. Um, Jody Guest, you have been leading Emory's efforts to uh, uh, deal with outbreaks in specific areas of the state, Hall County, Milledgeville, Uh, You've worked with the Mexican consulate, focusing on communities with large disparities in COVID-19. Thank you for uh, being here today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be part of this panel. And we also welcome back our good friend. He's become our good friend since COVID-19 became an issue here. Dr. Harry Hyman, who's a clinical associate professor in the Division of Health Management and Policy at the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. Uh, Harry, you were director of the Division of Health Policy at the Satcher Health Leadership Institute of Morehouse School of Medicine. You're a fellow at the American Academy of Family Physicians. You've got more than 20 years of clinical practice experience. And I'm giving you all slightly longer introductions than we all often do because I want to make sure our listeners understand the credentials that you all bring to the show. Harry, thank you for being back with us. Thank you, Bill. All right, so let me start with the basic question. Um, Jody Guest, let me just start with you, and then all three of you, I'd love for you to weigh in. The Department of Public Health and now the White House Task Force say things are getting better in Georgia. 
we were at a plateau somewhere around 3,000 cases a day, I think, in a general uh, sense. Now we're down, we know, to about 1,400. Uh, the governor has said that things are getting better. So first, Jody Guest, and then all of you, where do we stand right now in Georgia? Are things getting better? Should we feel a sense of relief or not? So it's true that the numbers have definitely come down the last two weeks. Um, they're around, we had 1,500 cases uh, yesterday with a moving average of, seven-day average of around 2,100. That is mm -hmm. great. It is definitely down from the peak from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, our peak was really probably around four weeks ago. But that is also still 3.4 times higher than it was when our shelter in place was lifted back in April. So it is still way high compared to what we want it to be, but it is true that it's down. I also want to make sure we interpret that in relationship to the fact that our testing is down. And so we need to be somewhat cautious in our interpretation. When we are not testing at the rate we were testing at four weeks ago, we are not 100% positive if this decline is a true decline or a decline in testing. Yeah, I, 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 if I can just build on that for a minute, you know, I, I think it's, I, I liken it to a forest fire where, you know, you have 100 acres that are burning and you've gotten 30 acres uh, under control. So you have it 30% contained. But, but by the way, we, we still have very hot, dry temperatures. Uh, and, and it's still burning in 70%. You know, I think even if you take the Department of Public Health's uh, most recent report, they said, and I'll quote, though case numbers are decreasing slowly, they're at a very high plateau. So this represents a risk for future increased transmission and even spikes. And I think that's accurate. I think we are still in the red zone uh, based on the White House coronavirus report uh, and, and, and I think uh, we still have to uh, proceed forward in ways that actively mitigate this pandemic. Yeah, uh, you know, Bill, I, I think zooming out a little bit, I understand the, the impulse to respond with optimism to downward trends in the numbers when we see them. They're new information, they're good news, which we all desperately want and need. But if that is how we are designing our response, um, then we're doing outbreak response wrong and we're just thinking too small. We just can't get overly fixated on these trends because each of these numbers reflects not only enormous and constantly changing complexity in the reporting system, like, like Jody mentioned, you know, decreasing test sites or decreasing access to testing in one part of the state, that's particularly strongly affected can dramatically change those numbers, even if the actual epidemic is trending a different direction. But these numbers also really only reflect the behaviors of people three or four weeks ago, which themselves reflect policies made at a minimum a month or a month and a half ago. So if we're designing responses to the pandemic based on these weekly trends, we are responding very slowly and we're just thinking too small. Okay. So Tamar, um, I, I, I want to unpack a lot of what uh, our, our panelists just said, but, but, but Tamar, here, here's my question about all this. Governor Kemp has been under uh, a lot of criticism from people who say that he has refused to take the necessary steps to control the virus. He won't issue a mask mandate. He still allows gatherings of 50 people in uh, locations around the state. Um, he, there are many things that he has chosen not to do by mandate, but, but, on the other hand, right now the numbers 
are coming down. And, and I want to, Mark, read to you one section of a letter that the governor wrote. We've, we've just seen it in the last couple of days, but he wrote it back on August 12th. Remember that Jim Clyburn's uh, select subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis wanted him to testify as to why the virus seemed to be spiraling out of control here. And here's what just a little bit of what he said. The governor said in responding to Clyburn, from the very, very beginning, we've used data science and the advice of public health officials like the Department of Public Health Commissioner, Dr. Kathleen Toomey, to craft our approach to combating COVID-19. Of course, the White House task force has said he should have a mandatory mask requirement in place. But let's go on. Uh, with favorable data and positive trend lines, Georgia reopened the shuttered parts of our economy in late April and early May. But of course, that's when spikes began happening. But then here's what I want to share, especially with you, Tamar. In Georgia and throughout the country, many grew complacent. Complacent Summer holidays coupled with televised protest caused many to let their guard down and abandon guidelines provided by public health officials. Essentially, in that sentence, Tamar, he's saying... It's our fault because we weren't voluntarily doing all we could to control the virus. That said, the numbers are down. Yeah, and, and there's a report on the front page of the AJC today talking about how the spike in Georgia's cases, a lot of them can be tied to Memorial Day weekend, a, a big holiday when a lot of people want to get out of town, go to the beach, congregate, and things like barbecues. And it presents a warning to us going into next weekend, Labor Day, another big holiday when everyone wants to take out and hang out with their friends. So, um, you know, you've seen the governor highlight things like um, the seven-day average that's lower than what it was and fewer new cases and that sort of thing. But that could all change on a dime, as we said. And we might see about two week, two three weeks after Labor Day, those numbers shoot up again if, if too many people were hanging out in big groups. Yeah. And I want to build on that also and say we're looking at data from the past two weeks that are going down. But what we know is that the data from the past two weeks are not complete. 14-day data is always lagging behind. And in Georgia, we've had tests that have been as late as 19, 21 days after they were um, performed. And so those numbers get backfilled. So that decline that we see, which we see almost all the time in 14 days, we really need to be careful about interpreting. Um, I want to go back to what Karen said. If we're looking at that for our good news, which it is, and saying then we need to change everything, we will have lost the momentum that we were making. Um, Harry? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think I, I reviewed that letter also that uh, Governor Kemp uh, sent in response to uh, Chairman Clyburn uh, dated on um, August 11th. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate from my perspective that the governor has really worked hard to maintain a narrative that we've actually made the right choices all along when, when in fact, I, I believe we haven't. I mean, if you look back to the very beginning when the case count started going up, the, the rationale on the part of the governor was, well, we're doing more testing. It's a reflection of testing. Uh, and then when we pointed out that, well, that's really not the case because the case positivity is up, it's well, but it's mostly younger people, so we're not seeing hospitalizations and deaths going up. And then, in fact, as predicted by uh, me and, and other physicians and public health folks, um, the hospitalization rate went up, and then the answer was, well, hospitalizations are going up, but at least we're not seeing a rise in the death rate. But then predictably, three to four weeks later, the, the death rate went up. 
And so where we are now is we have cases coming down, we have hospitalizations coming down, but we actually have, uh, on average, uh, about 60 to 70 Georgians still dying each and every day because of this pandemic. Uh, and I think we know that there are evidence-based practices that the governor should have and still needs to put in place, like mask mandates, like closing bars and nightclubs. Um, we have schools reopening at a time when we still have a high level of community spread. It is not safe for in-class instruction until we control this better in communities. And we still have the governor wanting to blame individuals for their lack of judgment. I think that's irresponsible leadership. Right. Yeah, and I think just building on what Bill said, I, I'm sorry, what uh, Harry said, the last um, the last response when, when all the rest of the numbers start to trend downward, but the deaths are trending upward is, you know, oh, the deaths are just the result of what happened early this summer. So let's just make policy based on the case counts right now. And that's, again, it's just the wrong way to design a response to an outbreak. We need to instead design a response based on what we actually know about this virus. It spreads by aerosol, usually in, in closed spaces, by people with or without symptoms, and its worst effects are on people with pre-existing conditions, of which 60% of Americans have. So if we designed a response based on that information alone, instead of which metric is up on which day and which week and, you know, what the, the smaller trend lines are, we would have an outbreak, uh, I'm sorry, a case curve that looks like a flat line with a few bumps here or there, not these huge hills and valleys. And, you know, the ingredients that we use to make that response are not different from what we already know about. There's, it's not a magic uh, combination of things that we haven't tried yet. It's just applying these in a sustained fashion rather than treating them like on and off switches that we move in relationship to a, an epitrend. So let me just underline what I'm hearing all three of our doctors say, Tamar, that people like me, who are ignorant of epidemiology, who are spending all of our time paying attention to the rolling seven-day average of new cases, who are paying attention to the last 24 hour of new, hours of new, newly reported cases, we are not able to judge where the virus is headed based, Tamar, on that kind of uh, information, it's much more complicated than that. Just to make sure we're all on the same page on that. Tamar, you want to weigh in? Sure. And we also live in a world, given our social media, our cable news TV, where we want to make decisions instantaneously. We're used to getting data instantly after big events. And so it, it's so frustrating that even when you do get data after two weeks, you're still wondering, you know, it's clearly not complete and, and it's hard to make choices based off that. It's also worth noting that, and, and hopefully the doctors here can, can correct me if I'm wrong, but we're also heading into the colder months of the year when uh, flu-like you know, viruses are, are easier to, um, you know, that they tend to um, increase during the winter months. And, and it's going to be harder for us to spend time outside where it's a little um, harder for transmission to occur. So that presents an even greater risk. All right, so that's that's a great. I, I'd love to turn to that for just a minute. I've got lots of questions that I'd really love to have you all answer, but I think Tamar just hit on one of them. What, um, Karen? Why don't you take a far shot at this first, and especially because you work in pediatrics. So I want to talk about two things that kind of come together. Number one, as Harry points out, some schools in the state are reopening for in-person classes, not uh, grades K through 12. We've already seen. 
outbreaks based on uh, schools in uh, Cherokee County and other places where there's been a problem. Um, and also, we are moving into the colder months. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, epidemiologists have not seen a correlation between temperature and COVID-19. There was this thought that maybe uh, corona, this coronavirus, like many others, would respond better to colder weather than hotter. That hasn't been the case. But what do you think about what Tamar's saying? Combining the virus with the flu and schools that are uh, reopening. Yeah, I think Karen, you go first. Yes, thanks, Bill. Um, I think Tamar's absolutely right in that the um, you know the, the scientific and medical community are, is very concerned about what might happen in those situations. Um, it, there has been some work done on um, on sort of weather and other environmental changes on viral propagation and droplets and how well they survive in cold weather and you know thinking that that might contribute in some way to the increased transmission of flu during flu season but i think the primary driver of that is that people are together in enclosed spaces more and they share air and that's what we what i think will contribute most to transmission of both flu and covid um in the in the coming cooler months um you know Reopening schools is um, and colleges, I should say, universities uh, is a is a big concern as well. Um, I don't want to get too far into that because I know we're we're going to talk about that a little more. But I think you know that's a really a really difficult situation um, in part, especially for for um, families with school aged children, um, the age of which they they determine whether a parent can work at home or not if the kid is at home. So, you know, those risks are going to shake down differently for each family, but we cannot um, ignore the risk that um, that is, is brought to a, a child's contact when that child is going to in-person school just by virtue of being in an enclosed space with other kids. Jody, is there also a sense in which if I get the flu, I just had my flu shot yesterday, um, but if I were to get the flu, um, I can confuse the symptoms of flu for COVID-19. I may, so I may run out to try to get a test. I might not know the difference until the test comes back seven days later. Is that part of what complicates and confuses the, 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 the rise of the flu season with COVID-19 still around us? Yeah, I mean, I think there are a couple of things going on here. First of all, you know, COVID-19 is not the flu, but you're right. They share a lot of the same symptomology because these symptoms yeah. are generally pretty vague um, to start with and ubiquitous type of symptoms. Um, you know, I think that our concern, as Karen was pointing out, is that as we all go back inside, we're going to be closer together. Um, and that's going to be a good breeding ground for COVID-19, even for those that have been um, staying separated or doing most of their work outside. We have the potential, though, for this to be an important um, positive impact on our flu season. Um, you know, if you get the flu, you're going to be immunocompromised and COVID-19 is going to like that. But if we wash our hands more than we normally do, if we stay masked and we stay distanced and we get our flu shots earlier, so thank you for getting yours, Bill. If we do all of that, <laughs> there is the potential that we'll see a pretty flat flu season. So we have the ability to make this flu season better than normal. And that would be a great thing for all of us. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's do you like the half glass full? Do you like the half, the, the glass half empty? Um, you know, from my perspective, job number one for our political and public health leadership was 
to get this pandemic under control as we move into the fall uh, for two reasons. Number one, to create a safe environment in communities for kids to go back to school. Um, again, what I mean by safe environment is case counts at a low level, no community transmission, then it is actually safe in a phased way to reopen schools to in-person uh, instruction. Uh, but number two was to put us in a good place as we enter the flu season. And the flu season is a problem for a number of reasons. One, we talked about it can be confusing. Do I have the flu uh, or do I have COVID? Um, but even during an average flu season, um, our healthcare system is stressed. It's not unusual for our major medical centers across the state to be on bypass for critical care beds during an average flu season. Right now, given the current state of COVID in our state, we have 20 major hospitals across the state that are on diversion or bypass for either emergency department or critical care beds. I'm talking about many of the major medical centers in Atlanta, uh, in Augusta, in Savannah, uh, in, in small towns like in, in Darity County and Albany. So we're entering a flu season, a time when we know there's, uh, there's uh, considerable increased demand on the healthcare system at a time where many parts of our healthcare system are already still feeling overwhelmed. That's not a good place to be. Not only that, but there's, I think, a little bit of fatigue from the public in terms of sheltering in place and having to do all the things you need to do to prevent the spread of COVID. And I felt it too socially. I want to go out and see my friends and, and meet with them in a park, but that's going to become harder and harder as it gets colder outside. And there's going to be more of a temptation to, oh, well, why don't we just go to a restaurant? Why don't we just hang out a couple of us in somebody's living room? And I think you're going to see that across the board. I think um, what Harry said is a key point that um, the strain on healthcare systems is the real danger of the of both flu and um, coronavirus circulating at the same time. Um, keep in mind that these the most at risk for um, both of these. Uh, kinds of infections are not exactly the same group. So we're not talking about the same people getting infected with either flu or coronavirus. You know, much younger children are at much higher risk um, for bad outcomes or needing hospitalization from the flu than they are from uh, coronavirus infection. So it's an added layer of people at high risk for bad outcome needing hospitalization from this. So really, um, as Harry said, uh, a real concern for overtaxing of the hospital system. All right, but I want to. I've got to get to a break here, but but again, let me let me clear up another question that people are certainly asking, and that's this confusion over whether children going to school are in fact, uh, especially in younger grades, we've been told repeatedly until recently that they are less susceptible to getting COVID nineteen than older uh, uh, individuals. Now we're hearing that's not true, and not only can they get COVID-19, but they can shed the virus, and we didn't used to assume they could. Is that correct? Absolutely. They can, they can get, they can shed, and they can become ill from the virus. They just don't seem to do, the, do so um, without a pre-existing condition at rates as high as adults do. Um, so, yes, they are absolutely, you know, and kids don't live alone. <laughs> kids live with other people, and those other people often have exactly the kinds of conditions that predispose them to really bad outcomes. So, yes, they are. They matter. I love it. I'm seeing the fog lifting off of some of the misconceptions and confusion I've had. So we're going to continue doing that as we go on with Political Rewind. But let's stop for a minute, take a break, and we'll be right back. 
Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're talking about the pandemic on uh, Political Rewind today and have a terrific uh, panel of doctors who can help clarify some of the confusion that I at least feel surrounding all this. I'm joined by my colleague, Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter for the AJC. She's with us on Tuesdays. Dr. Jody Guest, vice chair of Department of Epidemiology at Emory University, a, an, an epidemiologist herself. Dr. Karen Landman, a physician, epidemiologist. And I don't know if I said you were a journalist when I introduced you earlier. A health. Where, where do you uh, tend to write your, uh, your, your pieces, uh, Karen, if people want to find them? Yeah, uh, thanks, Bill. I write for Atlanta Magazine a fair amount um, for uh, Elemental, which is uh, one of Medium's health and science verticals, uh, occasionally for the New York Times, um, for NPR, periodically, you know, wherever, whoever will pay me to do it. All right. And we also have back with us Dr. Harry Hyman, who is a professor in the School of Public Health at Georgia State University. Um all right, let's keep talking about uh, some of the things that uh, people are concerned about as we move into the fall. Uh, we talked a little about schools, and, and we understand that you all think it's risky for in-person classes to start again. Harry Hyman, uh, you know, I'm a Chicagoan. I moved down here and didn't understand the religion of college football, but now I get it. Uh, and we're going to have a college football season. We're going to have a high school football season. Uh, it's one thing, there are sports where you might be able to practice these skills fairly safely, but what kind of risks are we taking with high school football and with college football? Yeah, I'm not sure I would agree with your prediction. I, I think we might attempt to have a high school or a college football season. Oh. Uh, I, I, I suspect um, the, the coronavirus will have its way and, and very quickly we'll, we'll, we'll need to rethink that. Um, again, for me, it's, 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 it's another stark example that uh, challenges us to think about what our priorities are, uh, particularly when we think about uh, safety of our, of our children and young people. Um, you know, I think, look, we, we know that anything that brings people in close proximity uh, increases their risk for, uh, for COVID-19. Um, I've, I've yet to see a, a lineup of football players uh, on, on, on the field that wasn't in close proximity. So, so I think it's, um, it's, a, it's a bad judgment to, to prior, prioritize that over the things we need to be putting in place to ensure the safety of children and, and public more broadly. Jody Guest, do you think like with some of the schools that open for in-person classes, both in the K through 12 and also at the college level, they very quickly had to shut down because COVID-19 started running through the student body. Uh, you agree with Harry, we're going to see that in football, where you have close contact, people breathing into each other's faces throughout the game. 
Yeah, so, you know, when you look at the teams, look at college teams that are going to play. There's, there are 76 teams that are still scheduled to play, and they're mostly in the southeast, which is where we've got our biggest hot spots of the epidemic right now. So it's really actually the places you wouldn't want them to leave. But in addition to the players, it's the fans. There's a great study that was done um, on ESPN looking at the spread of the fans within um, 24 hours after they leave a stadium. And that's, so you've got this mass mixing event where you've got people from all different communities coming together, they sit together, and then they go back to their communities. So you've got a super spreader event potential, and you've got it, people taking it to so many different communities afterwards. And that's a really big concern that you're not thinking about when you're sitting there cheering for your, your favorite fan, your favorite player, or your favorite team. Yeah, that's actually what happened, uh, what touched off the huge, huge outbreak that we witnessed in Italy um, at the very beginning of this pandemic was a giant soccer game. There was a lot of tussling politically about whether it was a good idea. And then one of the, um, one of the, I think it was, might have been the governor of, of Lombardy, I forget the exact political title he had, but said, no, it's, it's going to go forward sort of as a, a and it ended up being an enormous super spreader event and touching off this enormous and terrible um, pandemic. And, you know, we even knowing what we know, the fact that we're con contemplating putting all of these on, I think, says something about, you know, the misaligned incentives in um, uh, in, in SEC sports and college sports in particular. I mean, these players are not paid to take on this risk um, that we're putting on them, but colleges um, and, and others make huge amounts of money off of this industry. Yeah, for sure. And you have not only all these fans coming from all over the place to come and assemble, but you're also you're putting them in close proximity with one another. They're screaming, they're singing, and, and it's a great opportunity for those respiratory droplets to, to start traveling as well. Um, all right. So we all, I think, again, there's some agreement that it will be risky to uh, go ahead and have both high school and college football, and we'll see how quickly people have to shut down um, based on uh, uh, whether virus ca cases of COVID-19 start spreading very quickly. Um, all right, so let me, if I, I may, Harry, I want to start with you on this because you're the policy person on this show. Um, it, it strikes me, and we're going to talk about this probably into the third segment of the show as well, because there's some important public policy issues, health issues, and policy issues that are being contemplated and being uh, activated right now that uh, I think we have good reason to get some clarity around. So with that in mind, as I said at the start of the show, you can't separate politics from the virus, unfortunately. Um, and in fact, if I go back to Governor Kemp's letter to uh, the uh, uh, subcommittee on the coronavirus crisis. The last paragraph of that letter says this. Over the last several months, many have tried to exploit this pivotal mo moment for personal or political gain. Frankly, it is sad and disappointing. People are dying, businesses are hurting, and most Americans are concerned about what the future holds. Now is not the time for petty games or hidden agendas. We must set our differences aside and work together to overcome the challenges before us. That's Governor Kemp talking to James Clyburn, the uh, chairman of that subcommittee. So, Harry, we are now looking at a series of decisions made in Washington 
about things like uh, convalescent plasma treatment uh, and, and other things. So let's march through some of those. The president, uh, and the reason I bring this up after talking about college football, schools reopening, is the political component of all that is it is in the interest of the, uh, the, the Republican Party and President Trump right now to say everything's normal, we're going to be fine, just come out and vote for us on November 3rd. And they are offering treatments which they say will help us get back to normal. Let's talk about the politics of all this first, Terry, and then drill down on some of the things that are being advanced as uh, ways to make us safer. Talk about the politics for a minute. So, you know, I think the, the, the reality is um, there's always been a powerful intersection between politics and policy. Uh, that precedes our current administration, the administration before that. It's, it's the nature of policymaking. Uh, we, we, we like to teach students that uh, we use best evidence to, to guide policy, but, but politics have always been an important part of it. Um, our failure to do things like expand Medicaid in our state are a profound example of how politics trumped uh, evidence-based policy. Um, but I think what we're seeing now is tremendous political influence on the agencies that we as a country rely on for evidence-based policy. And I'm talking about the Centers for Disease Control, uh, the CDC, and I'm talking about the FDA. Uh, and I think uh, that this past couple of weeks, we've seen two stunning examples of how uh, political priorities have trumped uh, evidence uh, that should guide, guide policy. I think we saw Commissioner uh, Hahn from the FDA um, unfortunately demonstrate his willingness to allow political priorities and pressures to uh, really over, overwhelm and overshadow science and public safety in his statement and misrepresentation of the data around um, using convalescent plasma as a treatment, which is really without substantial uh, data to support right now. And he presented it in a way that, that he knows better. Uh, and I think we also saw a stunning example of uh, CDC's guidelines around testing um, being revised candidly outside the agency uh, in a way that uh, I can tell you from, from talking to uh, many of my colleagues that work at CDC in, in a way that, that, that made them um, both, 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 both angry and demoralized. Um, and I think what's, what's frightening about this is we're all looking forward to the day when we have hopefully a vaccine for COVID. Um, to roll out a vaccine requires tremendous public trust that those agencies responsible for ensuring the safety and effectiveness of that vaccine uh, have done their due diligence. And, and right now we're really undermining the public trust and that creates for me very dangerous precedents. Tamara, are you on mute? You saw, I think your phone's muted. Uh, we've lost you, Tamar. Jody, why don't you go ahead uh, while we try to get reestablish Tamar's uh, audio? Sure. So I'm by no means an expert on convalescent plasma, but what I do know is that when we talk about um, how it's going to have an impact and it's supposed to decrease death by 35%, and the the example that was given was that's going to save 35% out of, or 35 people out of 100. The problem is 100 people weren't going to be dying. Um, thanks, thankfully. The problem with that interpretation, though, is 
3% of those 100 people were at risk to die of COVID-19. So when you have a 35% reduction in death, you're really talking about one person out of 100, not 35. And so that's not moving the, the, uh, the marker very much. And, that, and convalescent plasma is a really pretty expensive treatment. We would all like it to be a magic bullet. We would actually all like to find the magic bullet um, and have it be out there. But um, so far, we've not found that. But in fact, uh, Karen, it, the, the president is desperate to be able to give the American people good news ahead of the election. Now, I don't blame a politician for wanting to paint the best possible picture for why he or she should be reelected. But I also think it contributes to the confusion that we're talking about on the on the program today. It is my understanding, and you can talk in terms of convalescent plasma, we know a couple of things. Number one, Stephen Hahn, the FDA commissioner, had to withdraw in a very embarrassing way his early claims about the value of this for uh, curing people with COVID-19. Because as Jody points out, it turns out it's 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 good in only very very limited instances. Um, so there there is is that as a starting point for talking about how the FDA it appears they being they're being pressured to uh, to to give us miracle cures. Yeah, I mean I think you know Eric Topol, who's the editor in chief of Medscape, wrote an open letter to Stephen Hahn in, in the publication yesterday, and you know he said and and Hahn did walk back you know the way he presented the data as sort of absolute versus relative risk. But that's a really very, very limited walk back of, of, of a broad overstatement of the benefits of convalescent plasma that we know about. It wasn't a randomized trial. Um, at the, the, the types of, I mean, I, I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but fundamentally, um, he overstated it in so many different ways, the benefit of convalescent plasma. Um, it, it, you know, and also uh, we haven't really mentioned it, but the the firing of sort of the the lead um, press person at the FDA, who was a fundamentally a Republican operative, eleven days after she started, presumably because of some role she played in this misstatement, is also pretty telling um, about you know probably some kind of power struggle that's happening at the FDA. But I think, you know, look. In a crisis, when we have a potential therapy, it is actually not bad science for us to fast track learning more about that therapy and doing these kinds of observational things that um, the Mayo Clinic and others have done. These are the data that Han cited to, to understand who might benefit most from these. But these are hypothesis generating studies. They are not studies that guide treatment. So we can use that information to help influence how we recruit for or design randomized controlled trials on the basis of which the FDA might then say, make a recommendation. But you cannot do that on the basis of what we know right now. And it was a really gross misuse of the trust of the American public and the American scientific community to, to say what he did. All of the things that you just mentioned, as with a vaccine, and we'll talk about that in a minute, take time, maybe more time than through November 3rd, the election. By the way, I think Mayo, uh, when they did their small study, they in fact had four or five deaths as a result of treatment with uh, 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 convalescent plasma, which should send up some kind of warning uh, flag about whether it's uh, good for wide use. Tamara, I hear we have you back with us. 
Yeah, and um, I missed a, a segment while we were reconnecting, so I'm, I apologize if anybody's talked about this already, but Dr. Hyman was talking about how policy and politics have always been wed to one another, but President T Trump has made it all the more obvious and apparent during his briefings, and he keeps talking about how he wants to see a vaccine before November 3rd. And so it's, it's become so clear the pressure that Stephen Hahn and the FDA are under to approve something as soon as possible, and even Trump has talked about how, um, you know, he concerned that people at the FDA or the CDC might be holding something back until after the election to hurt him and help Biden. All right, we got to get our final break of the show out of the way. Let's do that and come right back with more on Political Rewind. Um, because politics does play a role in how the data is being uh, uh, manipulated and released to the public, we're trying to clear up some of that confusion today. Dr. Jody Guest, you uh, gave me an interesting uh, question that you thought we might want to discuss on the show today, and that's this newly released information that only 6% of the fatalities from COVID-19 are of people who have no underlying condition. And that's being used uh, by some to suggest that uh, you're exaggerating COVID-19. It isn't as bad as people uh, think it is. Uh, go ahead and talk to us about that. Yeah, sure. So unfortunately, the headlines are actually even worse than you said. A lot of people are using it to say that only 6% of the 187,000 people that we are attributing to COVID for deaths in the United States, only 6% of them are actually COVID-19 deaths, which is just a remarkable misinterpretation of the data. Um, what we know from that preliminary report Number one, it was done on death certificate data. And as Karen pointed out earlier, 60% of all um, adults in the United States have an underlying condition. These are conditions that are as prevalent as hypertension, which is super common in the United States. Obesity, um, you're 4.5 times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID-19 if you are in the um, obese category. If you've got hypertension on top of that, you're 5.5 times more likely to be hospitalized. And then we know your death rate goes up. So our problem is twofold. The majority of people are going to come into the hospital with a comorbid condition, so it makes sense that 94% of them have that listed. Secondly, because these are death certificate data, 66,000 of them were listed as having pneumonia or a respiratory infection at the time of death. That's from their COVID-19. So this is a mixing of two things, comorbid conditions before you came in, which is more likely to get you there, and then you don't die from COVID-19 just spontaneously. You die because you've had this huge impact on your, on your body that leads to respiratory infections and pneumonia and sepsis. And that gets listed on your death certificate. Yeah, I think, I think that's a critical point. And, and, and I worry that we're potentially, by what you said, Bill, misleading people about the idea that, you know, 94% have some kind of um, – coexisting or pre-existing condition. What, what we're talking about, as Jody said, is death certificate data. Um, and I can tell you, as someone, as a physician who has completed death certificates, people rarely die from a single diagnosis in the hospital, right? They come into the hospital with a stroke. Uh, they, they maybe had hypertension. They maybe developed pneumonia. They may, so, so there are always three or four diagnoses put on the death certificate. Um, what this is saying is, of 
the um, 180,000 plus people across the country who have died from COVID, only 6% had COVID as their sole diagnosis. Uh, to Jody's point, right. um, they, they died of COVID-related pneumonia. They, they, they died of a COVID-related um, heart-related problem. Um, they also had uh, uh, a pre-existing condition that exacerbated the COVID. So I think it's really important to put that, that data in context. And to also remember that an early study done in the Atlanta area looked at hospitalized patients and found that of those hospitalized patients, 50% of those did not have a pre-existing condition that made them more susceptible for, for COVID. So while we all like to put a distance between ourselves and diseases or problems that we're afraid of, and we should be afraid of COVID, to say that, well, I don't have high blood pressure or diabetes or other pre-existing condition, I don't need to worry, is really a, a false sense of security that's not granted in the data. So, Tamara, let me it, it strikes me as I listen to this conversation and it's Harry who just sort of corrected the way I uh, gave that number, that six percent number. The responsibility that journalists have right now is incredibly important in getting at the at the real at the reality of what's going on, not we don't understand this stuff as well as the doctors on the show today, but it's incumbent upon us to learn so that we can interpret it correctly in the stories we write tomorrow. Yeah, I'd never written about epidemiology or any sort of infectious disease before <laughs> March and all of a sudden getting um, thrust into this world and calling people like Harry Hyman and Jody Guest and Karen Landman to, to help. And, and the problem is, given like I mentioned earlier, the climate with social media, there's such a push to, to get some big eye-popping number really quickly that'll look great in a tweet. Or one news outlet will publish that number, and so you feel like you need to match it ASAP, even if it's something we don't fully understand. So that's why it's so important to, to know epidemiologists and doctors like these to help us flush them out. Yeah, you know, and I think... Um, the, the opportunity that every single metric or number or change presents for each side to score points, it feels like something you can't lose out on. You know, there's high pressure to take advantage of this. Um, but, you know, as much as we lose faith in our leadership when they do that, you know, when, when somebody like a Stephen Hahn or a, you know, Dr. Redfield who runs CDC, um, as much as we respond with anger and mistrust when we see um, what looks like political maneuvering by cherry picking of those numbers. Um, you know, we we learn to distrust each other on a community level when we do this, when we use some metric to sort of fit our narrative instead of, you know, broadening our, our thinking to the possibility that these are very nuanced and difficult decisions that are not fundamentally political. They're about our health. Um, so I think, you know, it's not just incumbent on journalists and, and clinicians and academicians to talk in a broader, more inclusive way about what these numbers mean and what their impact is on health. It's on individuals in the community to think that way when they view these metrics. Yeah, and I'll build on that and say that um, what we've not done in public health is a great um, message about why we've sometimes changed our our interpretation of data. You know, in science, we're constantly trying to learn 
And when we learn, we are changing our understanding of this novel coronavirus. And that means we're sometimes changing the prevention messages that we're giving, the um, don't mask, mask, this kind of mask, that kind of mask. Those are, are changes because we've been learning, which we everyone should want us to be doing. We've not always done a great job of communicating why those changes have been thrust out into the public. Um, and so that's really on us to do a better job of communicating that. But those are advances and um, everyone should want us to be learning about this coronavirus for the protection of the public health. That's what we do. So it strikes me that certainly uh, when you talk about communicating, we have, you know, as much as we would love to think that CDC has been one of the great public health institutions in the world, which it has been, Unfortunately, and we don't even have time to talk about it today, performance of CDC this time around has really brought, brought mistrust to the entire institution. It is not Bill Fagy's CDC, that's for sure. And that's really a very disappointing uh, thing to contemplate. We are out of time. Oh, Harry, you want to get a quick comment in, but we only got a few seconds here. I just want to say that, that um, I, I, I would be hesitant to disparage uh, my colleagues at the CDC who are doing incredibly important work. I, I think we have a failure of pub, I think we have a failure of public health leadership, uh, including some of the leadership at CDC. I think that the people working there uh, are working hard uh, against a, an incredible current. Great. Thank you for. I'm glad you mentioned that. You're right. I'm talking about leadership communication at the leadership level. There are phenomenal professionals at CDC, obviously. Dr. Jody Guest, Dr. Karen Landman, Dr. Harry Hyman, and Tamar Hellerman. Thank you all for being with us for today's political rewind. We're back to politics on the show tomorrow, Thursday. A conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning acclaimed historian Doris Kearns. Goodwin. So join us for those two political rewinds coming up. Do me a favor between now and tomorrow. Take care. Stay healthy. And maybe I'll add, get a flu shot, for goodness sake. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>